0: we can be the most talented coach in the world but if we're toxic in the way we're behaving around athletes particularly when it comes to those moments where they've just failed or they're really disappointed we could do some lasting damage there it's so important to me that when i stand in front of the people i'm teaching that i'm inspirational to them that they want to learn from me and that's completely within my control we've got to learn to realize that we can push ourselves so much further outside our comfort zone than we really think we are
1: Welcome to the Gymnastics Growth Show. My name is Nick Roddick, a performance gymnastics coach providing world-class education, events, and consultancy services to the international gymnastics and professional sports community. This podcast is dedicated to optimizing athlete and coach performance from grassroots to gold standard. Stay tuned to discover tactics and strategies designed to transform results for you and your athletes. Welcome to episode 20 of the Gymnastics Growth Show with professional adventurer Deborah Searle MBE. Deborah Searle MBE is a truly inspirational woman. A professional adventurer, author, BBC presenter, and serial entrepreneur, Deborah first hit the headlines when she was set out to row across the Atlantic with her husband. Unfortunately, he had to be rescued, so Deborah, a novice rower, continued alone and rowed 3,000 miles from Tenerife to Barbados. It should have taken them six weeks, but to achieve her goal, Deborah ended up spending three and a half months at sea alone, encountering 30-foot waves and sharks in her 23-foot plywood boat. There's some incredible content, lessons for us as coaches, and discussions in this inspirational episode. As Deborah shares, her choose-your-attitude philosophy, which helped her row solo across an entire ocean, the mental tools that we can all use that will help us to break limiting beliefs and achieve our goals the importance of living intentionally and fulfilling our potential, how a coach's mindset can impact the athletes that they work with, and of course, much more. When people as accomplished as Deborah share their tools and mentality about life, we should all listen. There's so much we can learn about the behaviours and attitudes of high-performing people, and they don't get much more high-performing than Deborah Searle MBE. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a positive review on iTunes or Anchor and help to share this episode with your network. Let's get started. Okay, so Deborah, Searle, welcome to the Gymnastics Growth Show and can I firstly just say a huge thank you for your time. It's a a real honour to have you on the show and I'm just so excited for this episode.
0: I'm excited to be here. Love the idea of just making everyone in the gymnastics world better and, you know, to strive for greatness for the young people that are coming up through the ranks.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, also, I want to congratulate you on your just incredible list of accomplishments because its it 's quite unreal what you 've achieved not only um through the Atlantic road, which we 're obviously going to be talking about but but since then and i 'm sure there's times that you must pinch yourself as to you know is this all a dream or is it reality?
0: Yeah it is a bit weird because I didn't do great at school I was you know very passionate about gymnastics ironically it was my thing at school and um you know and on all the other sports and boys so I wasn't entirely focused at school level didn't leave with great qualifications and you know and that that's a limiting belief that's that held me back for a lot of years and it, it's been a, a big process to kind of work through that and say you know it doesn't matter how I did at school there's there's things within me um great things within me that can can help others and and so it's been a, a big piece of work just to go on that in- internal journey to get the external stuff going well.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and uh, and you say external stuff going well, I mean, it, it, quite a journey. Um, you've got one of the most inspiring stories of uh, strength, struggle, persistence and, and beating the odds, I guess, that I've ever heard and um the first my first contact with you you wouldn't have known that I was watching you but it was uh i think it must have been 2014 at the entrepreneurs convention um you were up on stage obviously sharing the story and it brought me to tears actually uh, there was moments of absolute laughter there was a moment when i cried in it um you know it was funny it was dramatic it was uh you know it was full of passion and so um, it was just a, a very incredible moment to see you speak and to, to share this journey, which I'm, I'm really excited that you're going to share with the audience today. But, uh, you know, on, on stage, you shared your story about the Atlantic Row that you did in 2001 when you, uh, you had a crazy idea to row across the Atlantic with your husband from Tenerife all the way over to Barbados. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. 3,300 miles. And, you know, as with most things in life, best laid plans and all that, it went completely wrong. And um, within the first night, it became apparent that this, you know, it wasn't going to go to plan. And Andrew had rowed internationally. I'd never even rowed before. And we were really expecting to rely on his skill and his strength and um, his background in rowing. And, And when we got out to sea we discovered that he had this kind of crippling phobia of open ocean and my six foot five big strong husband kind of dissolved over the next week into this you know just it got to the point where he was slipping in out of consciousness and it and I then was left with this massive decision about whether I carried on alone and tried to finish it for both of us Not knowing how long that would take, not having a rescue boat alongside me, and I'd be completely alone, or getting off onto a rescue boat when they came to collect Andrew, and so it you know all ended up being incredibly dramatic and so unlike
1: how we'd expected it to. I mean, I mean the concept itself. Let's say that things went as you had originally planned it. The concept itself is still crazy. I mean, you were in a in a in a, a rowing boat, but it's it's by no means a large rowing boat. It's still it's still small. Um you're gonna be on the Atlantic. The, I mean the weather systems that that would have and uh I mean how long was it was it planned to take roughly for you if it all went to plan and both of you were rowing?
0: It, we planned that it would take us six weeks and it ended up taking me three and a half months alone. Uh and you got rescued um at the start at the in week two, and then I had another further three months alone out there. And it and it's really hard to even describe to people what that's like because it's you know particularly if you think about at night time you're in a boat that's made of six millimetre thick plywood, so it's not a a big thick boat, um and it's mostly open to the elements with one tiny little coffin shaped cabin at one end that you can it's like a pod you can slide in if it's really stormy and shut the watertight hatch down and so at nighttime you've got these waves breaking over the boat on top of you in the pitch black you can't even see the waves coming you're kind of you know, you're listening to this the noise of the waves coming and then it smashes over the top of you and and um you know and and it's constantly difficult to block out this thought of the, that there are sharks in the water and so you know the whole thing is it it in potentially could have been horrendous but what was bizarre about the journey and about you know, it going wrong and Andrew getting off is probably the best thing that ever happened to me because in order to keep going through the storms and the fear and the, you know, just the overwhelmingness and the loneliness of it all, it forced me to find a load of attitude tools, like kind of mindset orientated stuff that I knew I was going to have to rely on if I was going to get there. Because as I said, I wasn't a rower, you know, I had no rowing experience to draw on. And and that, and that those were the attitude tools that changed my life and I've continued to use ever since I got off. And we're going to share a load of those today with people because they're very practical things. And, and I think anyone could do them and they can have a massive impact on your career and the people you're coaching.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, again, that alone as a story, I mean, just being alone for for three months or being out on sea for three and a half months. um, I mean, I can't even comprehend what that would feel like, you know, in the dark, bad weather systems. You're in this tiny, tiny boat, completely isolated and lonely. I mean, it's I mean, it's. I mean, I'm speechless now, but just you can't really resonate with that. But there were a lot more kind of challenges that you had to face on the way, weren't there? So, of course, there was, um, you know, your husband's fear of open space. That was initial one. But there were some other challenges in terms of um, cargo ships and things. I mean, it's not just a straight row is that you've got to you've got to worry about other traffic, which is using the sea. Um, And they weren't able to locate your position because you were too small. Is that right? yeah that's right I mean it was just bonkers the whole thing now
0: I look back and I think what was I doing because um, it's ridiculous really in that y- there's so much shipping traffic in the Atlantic and I hadn't even considered that before I left um, and I was just too small they didn't see me on their radar and so um, you know the, the the pattern I had was that I'd row for two hours rest for one hour row for two hours rest for one hour and in my one hour off there's always quite a lot to do you've got to navigate um, you know you've got to uh, plot your chart on your your navig your latitude and longitude position and work out if you're going in the right direction. You've got to eat eight thousand calories a day. you've got to fix stuff on the boat. And it normally slept about it left me about twenty minutes to sleep at the end of each hour off. So it was twenty minutes' sleep every third hour, twenty four hours a day. That was the routine. But of course you you become very sleep deprived, and I, you have to be on high alert the whole time because of the ships and the sharks and everything else. And I I wasn't alert because I was exhausted. And I, I'd been fixing something in the bottom of the boat and I hadn't looked up enough. And when I next look, looked up, there was just this enormous container ship um, bearing down on my position. And I, I just got to the side of it in, in time, and kind of bounced down um, the bow wave of this thing. And it just completely, like mentally I felt broken in that moment. I just thought... I cannot do this alone. I can't I can't stay out here without someone to be on watch when I'm sleeping or fixing the boat. And, you know, there were moments like that where it just seemed so desperate and I got so incredibly low. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I probably couldn't have made it without was that I had a satellite phone that ran off solar power. And in those moments, I would call my twin sister and our shore team and and they would just kind of talk me through it, you know, make make me carry on. Really, they gave me no option to ever give up. (laughs) So
1: I just had to keep pushing on. Um, Unbelievable. Did you ever feel being being so exposed on your own? Did you ever feel uh, an element of insignificance in terms of like the planet and the world and and you on this mission? Because there was just nothing else around. You were just in nature and it was just, you know.
0: Well, it's a very odd sense of perspective because you're you're on this massive ocean and um when it's when it's very still and there are lots of days where it's not stormy, there's no waves, and it's completely flat calm. And actually those days in a way are almost more eerie because you can see down into the water a bit more. And I was always convinced that a shark was gonna kind come of like come out of the boat and lunge at me. Um uh, but on on the flat calm days and it's a very blue sky, it's hard to see the difference between um, the blue of the water, the horizon line and the sky. And so it, it feels like you're inside this giant blue bubble and you're just kind of floating along in the midair. Uh, and it's a surreal experience because there's no landmass or ship or anything else most of the time to compare yourself to, like size-wise or to give you any kind of sense of perspective. And so it, it's, it's a really serene feeling in many respects.
1: When you look back now, can you believe that you actually did it? No. There must be times when you think, I mean, that was, I mean, how how was 2001, wasn't it? It's was just quite a long time ago now. Yeah. But was, I look back and think, geez, I mean, did I actually do that? That is ridiculous. I mean, as a story. Yeah, it sounds I've, like I've, I know up. what I'm
0: really lucky is that I've got some BBC footage because all the, you know, it was such a huge international news story at the time. And that was partly because um, September the 11th had just happened. I left shortly after September the 11th and the world had been, in, in a very dark period over the whole Christmas and New Year period that I was out at sea and there hadn't been much positive news stories. And so I think just you know, worldwide the news stories jumped on this and, and so I had, you know, all of the American TV networks, all the British TV networks, all the newspapers, they were all there when I finished and um and and, and that in itself was quite overwhelming, like being around people again but it did mean that I have got quite a lot of footage a lot of video of my arrival and you know on um you know on YouTube on my website you can see this this footage of me going up and down in these big waves and I show that when I'm speaking at these international conferences and I I always sit there in the audience before I go on stage looking at it thinking who is that idiot in the room (laughs) though I mean it just seems such a ridiculous thing to have done um but it, you know it was life changing
1: absolutely absolutely um do you kind of now that you've finished that you mean you must feel like superwoman i mean is there anything that you don't feel like you can accomplish now that you've kind of achieved that and i know you i know that you've done a lot of other expeditions and and some other kind of not quite as crazy stuff maybe but still crazy on the crazy scale <laughs> you know but
0: yeah I, I i mean i think what it did do when i first came back is there was that element of feeling like wow if you can get through that you can get through anything and, and that was a, a big part of undoing that journey that I had to go on internally around my limiting beliefs I had around the fact that I'm not intelligent enough or, you know, talented enough. And um a, a, and so at first it really helped me. I, I started working for the BBC and I, you know, I presented about 40 programs for the BBC and. Um, Sometimes they were just kind of daytime TV programs. I presented a program called Big Strong Boys (laughs) um, for many episodes. Um, But then I did more that was more in my adventure world where I'd I'd go off and do these expeditions and the BBC would come along and film them, make these beautiful documentaries out of them. Um, I had the, I ended up working with the royal family really closely for a decade. I was on the board of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award uh, as a trustee, and so I'd go to these kind of quarterly meetings at Buckingham Palace with Prince Edward and Prince Philip. And and so the whole thing was very surreal for you know f- straight after. It seemed so beyond what I ever thought I was capable of, but I kept on coming back to these mindset tools that had kept me going across the Atlantic. And every time I'd have those you know, that voice in your head say, saying you're not intelligent enough for this. You didn't do well at school. You know, I I could always go back to those mindset tools and apply some of those. And they, they really helped me perform better at work. And they would boost my I mean, if nothing else, they boosted my confidence on the days where I felt I wasn't enough to be there. I, I could always rely on those. And I suppose the advantage of having that big block of time, three and a half months at sea and being so reliant on those attitude tools was that I had plenty of time to practice them. In a, in a busy world, we don't often get to do that. And, you know, as with lot of things around mindset, it, it's not, you can't just do it once and it, it helps you've got to repeatedly do it till it becomes habit. And I had that time for it to become habit at sea.
1: Yeah. So the the mind is really a muscle, isn't it? And the more you train the, the mind, just like any other muscle, then the more it's going to be uh, effective for you. And I guess, yeah, you, you've been able to to create those tools and and hone them and polish them and and then put them into your your everyday life. Now, um, I mean, really, it, it kind of, if there's ever a story to make us realise how much we are underperforming against what we're capable of, this is kind of it to me.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and in it's it, it's sometimes hard for us to believe. But uh, you know, we are we are capable of so much more than we think we are. I I feel very blessed that I've had the chance to prove it to myself in such a dramatic way, and you know, because I. I'll always be able to hold the Atlantic row up as something where when I'm when, when I'm having doubts about anything, I can always say to myself, for goodness sake, Debbie, you rode an ocean like you can do this. Um, and that's really helpful to have that to fall back on. Um, but a lot of people don't have that. And it's almost like it's a learned behavior. We've got to learn to realize that we can push ourselves so much further outside our comfort zone than we really think we are. We can upskill We in in so many more ways. We can achieve so much more but it it takes conscious thought and effort.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, thankfully you said that about conscious thought and and consciousness, like understanding ourselves. I mean, linking this to the audience of gymnastics and coaches, um, I often share, there's kind of four areas that I think coaches should be really good at. That's knowing the athlete, knowing the sport, knowing how to teach, because that's very different than just knowing the sport, but also knowing yourself. And I think, um, i I come across a lot of coaches around the world and and many of them know gymnastics you know they know the rules they know the techniques they know the concepts um but without knowing yourself and knowing the process of teaching it's really difficult to get those um that knowledge of the sport across in a way that can produce results in a in a fantastic way so that that consciousness, consciousness that you're talking about and some of these mental tools i mean can you share what some of those are and how they could positively impact some of these coaches that are listening
0: yeah. I, I, I mean I think probably one of the the most powerful ones that I used at see that I I still I you know talk about an awful lot because I'm I so believe in it is that um it, it it's a practice that's called choose your attitude. And it was one of the days when I only got run over by a container ship actually. I called up my twin and I was Haley, I was screaming down the phone at her that she had to get me a rescue. Absolutely. And she said she just said oh, you know, Debbie, you just gotta choose your attitude about this. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> at the time I'm thinking, I am gonna punch you when I see you next. <laughs> but actually that that concept, those three words, choose your attitude, really struck with me because it was something I'd never thought about before. That actually I have a choice about the attitude with which I show up in front of people or which I face my challenges out at sea or whether I'm back on land. And so I ended up writing Choose Your Attitude on the cabin door, which was what I looked at every day as I was rowing. And I, I, because I've not got a great memory, I I decided I needed to turn it into a little exercise. So that was like my brain trigger. It was written there for me to see. It reminded my brain to do it. And then I sit by the side of that cabin hatch door at breakfast time. And I would say out loud, right, come on, Deborah, choose your attitude. Which one is it going to be today? And I'd make myself pick one, well, Of course, and it had to be a positive one because negative ones were banned from the boat. And it was like, you know, enthusiasm or optimism or, you know, some, something that where I could then list the benefits of what would come if you stuck to being enthusiastic for the day. That was part two of the exercise, list the benefits. So I'd think, well, if I was being enthusiastic, I suppose I might pull harder, then I'll do more miles today than I've done on any other day. Um, or... um, You know, if I'm being enthusiastic when I speak to the short team back home, they'll be encouraged that I'm doing well. Um, You know, so and I would go on down the list. And by the time I got to the end of the list of benefits, I'd feel really enthusiastic about what the day might bring. But I suppose more importantly, now what I understand about neuroscience is that we're training our brain to look for ways to make those opportunities or those benefits I've listed a reality. And so when I came back to England, I put some new triggers in place. I've got one. If I'm driving to work, it's when I press the key thob on my car and it goes beep, beep. And that's my trigger. And I try and park as far away from the office door as possible. So I've got the walk across the car park to do those, those two steps. What's the attitude for the day? What be the benefits if you stick to it? And generally, every time by the time I get to the handle, I'm, I'm convinced it's worth giving it a go, like trying to stick to that attitude because I want those things to happen. That simple exercise is one I've stuck with because it completely allowed me to see that how I turn up or how your coaches show up in front of their athletes, they have a choice about and nobody wants to be taught by a grumpy coach. I mean, it's it comes down to something as simple as that that we know that children feed off enthusiasm. But there are days when, you know, I, I, I probably should have explained, I should have said right at the beginning that I used to be a PE teacher. So I used to teach gymnastics. And so when I put myself back in that mindset, I know that my children, when I taught them, they they were enthused when I was enthusiastic. And so I've got a choice about whether I show up in front of people in a grumpy mindset, letting the weight of the world bother me, or whether I choose to respond differently. And that simple exercise of choose your attitude helps me kind of consciously take that step to control my mindset before I step in front of people.
1: It's a it's a fantastic tool and it's it's simple as well, isn't it? Which is nice because it's, it's really a, simple. It's That's a low barrier for people to to adopt and use in their own daily life because it doesn't it doesn't require them to be sitting down with a notepad for an hour and a half. It doesn't you know, it just requires a bit of presence, doesn't it?
0: It does. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to do. And on those days, there's always like backup plans. So on those days, I've got a choose your attitude playlist on my phone in the car and I plug in my phone and I know there's like certain songs Then we've all got them. They're like, you know, they're memory songs that each one has got a memory attached to like a brilliant time. You've had like a great holiday or, you know, I've got ones that from a movie that my kids loved. Um, and, And I can put those songs on and I step out of the car like a a completely different person to the grumpy sod that stepped into it. You know, so there's, there's always ways to shift our mindset. Um, You know, we can either do it through this kind of self-talk through consciously choosing attitude. We can use music. Um, Science now tells us that movement makes a massive difference as well. So, you know, if it, it means me standing and doing five tuck jumps just to get the blood flowing, then that's what I need to do because it's so important to me that when I stand in front of the people I'm teaching, that I'm inspirational to them, that they want to learn from me. And that's completely within my control.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, you, you talk about living intentionally, don't you? And this is uh, this is very much about that. It's being intentional in the way that you're going to show up to work and the way you're going to deal with people. And, and am I right in saying that in order for you to be intentional about the way that you're living, you need some, some goals in place first?
0: Yeah, I, I think that makes a huge difference. I'm I'm am um, i I'm a big believer in reviewing the year we've just had, and then setting your goals for the future. Um, and I, I I would suggest that it can't just be work goals though. It can't just be about you know goal to do with where you want to get your athletes this year. It has to be much more holistically than that. And so for me, there are six goals that I um, I tend to goal areas I tend to focus on, and I just write them down each year. Um, there's, there's health, wealth and work, relationships, fun and giving back. And the fun one is really important because, you know, what's all this striving for if we're not actually enjoying it? Um, and if it's helpful, yeah, there's a template I use to write it down and, and, and you're welcome to go and download that. If you go to deboracell.com forward slash goals, Um, there's a there's a template that I fill out every year and it will guide you through the process and 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 that allows me to be really intentional about the way that I approach the year and I I think that feeds into my um, positivity around the people I'm teaching because I'm I I feel like all areas of life are you know it's not just work 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 you know it's not just picking up the kids and the the craziness of it all there's there's a little bit more structure to why I'm doing what I'm doing
1: so why do you think it's so hard for people? What's the resistance for most people to either choose their attitudes or to, to set goals? Because undoubtedly, when we hear it, it's like, it sounds obvious that that is what we should do. But really, so few of us in society would actually do that. You know, consciously choose their attitude on a day and, and you know, sit down with a notepad and, and, and write goals down. Why why do you think that it's so hard for people to do?
0: Yeah. I. It, there's a really there's a really simple explanation. um and it's it, it's because we we start from the, trying to achieve things looking at um what's the behavior I need to change rather than looking at it from the inside out. so start from working from an internal perspective. Our, our brains really work on autopilot a lot of the time. um we have to, you know, because there is so much stimulus around us. so, To put it into some kind of context, there are 11 million bits of information around you while you're sat listening to this podcast now. And your brain could be focusing, can only focus on 40 of them at one time. That's all our brain is capable of. So if I was to say to you now, um, while you're listening to this podcast, just become aware of how your waistband feels against your tummy. Now, a minute ago, you weren't aware of that. It wasn't one of the 40 bits of information your brain was processing out of this 11 million it could choose. And our brain is working on autopilot um, on on lots of things on you know on on breathing on the practical things of keeping our bodies moving as well as the way we think. Uh, we have these autopilot thoughts because we, we can only have 40 bits of information at any one time. But the great thing is we get to control which 40 bits of information we tell our brain are important. And it's becoming aware that we don't have to live off autopilot. Um, we don't have to just say, well, what are the behaviors I need to change? And often people do that with goal setting, like, you know, getting fit, for example. They'll say, um, right, I'm going to train five times a week. Uh, but that's starting with the behaviour. We first have to look at, well, what are the stories we tell ourselves about getting fit? Um, it, and people come up with all kinds of stories daily that stop them from training you know, and I know for me, I've got a huge list. I'm very good at using. <laughs> there is, oh, I'm really tired because my daughter woke me up or the cat woke me up again, which it did last night. Um, or, you know, I had a really late night last night, so I'm probably too tired to train or, um, you know, I don't, I don't have time today cause I've got to finish that bit of work or, you know, oh, it's a cardio day and I hate doing cardio. You know, like we can come up with all these stories we tell ourselves to stop ourselves achieving our goals. And actually if we start first with, well, why are those stories even there? If we look at What is the identity that I've got inside that makes me think of those stories? Then it allows us to approach our goals from a a place where we're much more likely to achieve them.
1: We'll be back to the podcast in just a few moments, but I'd like to take this opportunity to let you know that tickets to my annual flagship coach education event, GymCon, are now on sale at gymcon.org. Coaches from all over the world flock to Gymcon for strategies and tactics that are sure to help their athletes rise up the ranks and improve performance. With stacks of resources, exhibitors, networking opportunities and world-class coaches speaking, including myself and Amy Borman, it's set to be another must-attend event for the gymnastics community. Gymcon is taking place at June the 2nd at the National Conference Centre, Birmingham United Kingdom, on the doorstep of Birmingham International Airport. So to join 400 gymnastics coaches on June the 2nd at GymCon 2019, and to discover one of the most important but overlooked aspects of gymnastics coaching, head over to gymcon.org and secure your seats now. Now, back to the podcast. So a lot of this, we're talking about um, kind of emotional intelligence. So being aware of our own emotions and how we can manage those as well. Am Am I right?
0: Yeah, yeah
1: you know, you've obviously got this in bucket loads because essentially you, you've been, you've been thrown at all, all sorts of different events have been thrown at you. You've had to choose your response in order to gain your, the outcome. So, you know, you're out at sea and the sharks, for example, well, that's the events. And the way that you responded to that was obviously going to be, um, influencing the outcome, but let's, let's come back to a more, uh, realistic, um, you know, scenario. For example, a lot of people might show up with the right attitude. Um, but they can quickly get swayed away from that because obviously when emotion goes up, intelligence tends to come down. Um, and emotional intelligence is really a skill, isn't it? A skill that needs to be learned yeah. and therefore needs to be taught. That's not just with regards to coaches, but I find with our athletes as well. And, and I think that emotional intelligence is a really important skill for coaches to understand because um, if they can't manage their own emotions, how can they expect their athletes to be able to uh, to manage those um, also? And guide those. So have you got any tips and tricks or anything in your mental toolkit which which helps you with that process as well? So it's it's about, you know, responding to situations in certain ways.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really important because children, um, you know, they make up stories about why coaches are behaving a certain way. And I know just from the way my daughters come back from their gym training each week that they will say, "Oh, my coach was, you know, you know, was X, Y, and Z this week." You know, they'll 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 say something, and they, and they've interpreted something about the behaviour of their coach. That I think, gosh, you've you know, in a child's brain, they can't possibly process that it might be because maybe the coach is just having a bad day because the father-in-law's got cancer at the moment and they're worried about it. You know, children will automatically go, Oh, well, it's me. I've done something or they're angry with me about something. And, and so we've, you know, that's why I think it's so important that we're aware that of our emotional intelligence and, and, and what we're passing on to our children, the children and, and the athletes, you know, if you're working with older athletes and I think part of it is actually being prepared to be honest and say, to to actually not allow them to fabricate stories about why you're behaving a certain way as a coach, but instead just to be honest and say, Do you know what, I'm having a really hard day today, everyone, but I'm going to choose Matthew today and we am going to have a really good session. And even just being prepared to be a bit vulnerable sometimes and be honest uh, is so powerful. There's a there's a fantastic TED talk by um, someone called Brenny Brown, and it's called the power of vulnerability. And I think that you know that not always trying to be right in front of people they've proven now is so key just to be prepared to be a bit more vulnerable and not allow um our athletes just to come up with other stories you know about why you might be in a, a bad mood is probably one of the first things i would say uh, that can really help but there's lots of others <laughs> Shall i keep going
1: if you wouldn't mind yeah that'd be great
0: um so i i think it's a, about controlling the controllables that's a really key one for me so um if you if you look at all the things you've got to do, quite often we feel really overwhelmed because we've we've got just got loads on. And if you if you write down a list, like you almost just like, you know, throw up on the page, like write it all down, all the things that are worrying you or that you've got to do, if you then go down that list and go, okay, right next to the, the list, what are the things I can control and what are the things I can't control? And as you look at the list, if you do it in different colours, like you know, red and blue, you you can immediately see, well, look, there's quite a lot of things there that I can't control. And yet I'm I'm spending all this time and effort worrying about it, and it's impacting my mood, and then that's impacting the athletes. But actually, what's the point in worrying about it? Because I can't do anything about it anyway. And so if we get really crystal clear about what are the things we can control, and we just put our time and energy into those things then that can have a big impact on you know, our emotional intelligence and the way we show up in front of people. Um, the other thing I would say is, is using um, what I call is my how-bad-is-it scale. And I would often use this one at sea because like you know, there were times when I had two hurricanes while I was out there, and the waves were so big. It's like seeing an apartment block racing towards you. And on those days, I'd be really um, fearful about how I was going to survive. And, and I'd have to ask myself this question, well, how bad is it really, Deborah? And I put myself on this 1 to 10 scale that I'd come up with. <laughs> and one, you know, 10 was um, you're being eaten by a shark because that was about as bad as I could imagine it getting. And one was, you know, you've made it to the finish line in Barbados. Hooray. And if I put myself on my worst days at sea when I felt like all hope was lost or I was really stressed about everything, I realized that I often only ever got to about a 7 or eight. There was always this little bit more mental and physical hardship that I could cope with, and so when I got back to England, I carried on using that how bad is it scale, and I wrote a new one, you know. And ten was, you know, the business has gone bankrupt or you know, you know I've lost my house, and and even on my worst days, when I'm really feeling the pressure of all that needs to be done, I, you know, I'm uh, probably on land. I'm only ever at about four or five. But we lose this sense of perspective in our busy lives with, with with what the real stresses are, and when we let them completely consume us, that's when our performance as a coach goes down. And so these are you know these are tiny little techniques. They take minutes to do. They're in your head. You can I can sit on the loose sometimes before a meeting doing them, or I, you know sit in the car before I go into an office and do it. They they, they take moments to do, but can massively impact our performance.
1: Absolutely, and you're right. Perspective at the end of the day, for, for the audience that are listening, it's just gymnastics. Exactly, <laughs> and it comes back to one of the the six things that you uh, that you measure your kind of goals on. One of them being fun, and it's got to be fun for us. It's got to be fun for the kids. And uh, now, personally, if there was a uh, a wave coming towards me, the size of an apartment block, I would probably put that on an eleven on your one to ten <laughs> scale. But, uh, <laughs> You're obviously a lot tougher than me. Um, <laughs> therefore, it's a little bit lower down the scale. But no, no, really, really useful tools. Um, just finally, you, not, not quite finally, but you mentioned about limiting beliefs earlier. And I think this for me is so, so important. I talk about um, the six D's and there's kind of three um, qualities that we need and there's three things we need to battle. So the three qualities we need uh, as high performing people would be discipline, devotion and desire. And we need yeah. to battle doubt, discouragement and disappointment because undoubtedly we're going we're gonna to face those. And I think limiting beliefs and self-doubt, are obviously, you know, like you said, the stories that we're telling ourselves, which are normally completely made up. Um, they might be stories that we've been playing for years and years, you know, even since we were children, maybe since we were coached ourselves and we were told that we weren't good enough to do something or, um, you know, we're lazy and just those kind of messages, which we play over and over in our head and become kind of concrete within our subconscious.
0: Oh yeah. And they're so debilitating and we carry them around forever. And most, you're right. A lot of us do pick those up when we're kids as well. Now I, I pick one up about, my lack of intelligence, because my English teacher said to me, your life will ever amount to nothing. And you'll never pass your GCSE English. And she said that to me in front of my whole class, she made me stand up. And she said that to me. And I have carried that with me. I'm 43 now, like, it's still something that I have to deal with. And we have this great power as educators in gymnastics, to destroy someone's life, or to make their life, we all remember our best Teacher at school, that person that impacted our life more than anyone else, and I think we should all be striving to be that person. But in order to do that, we've got to let go of whatever the limiting belief we've got. You know, whether it's, well, I'm, you know, I'm too fat, or I'm not intelligent enough, or I'm not good enough, or I'm, am never going to make much money out of this because you know you have got this kind of poverty mindset because you know all growing up, all your parents ever said to you is, well, money doesn't grow on trees, so, and you think money's always going to be hard to come by. And like we get programmed into this thinking because of the environment around us, the things our parents said, what we picked up at school what we pick up from the media and it's all stored there in our brain's hard drives, but we can override those limiting beliefs. You know, we, we can program our brain to see things differently. Um, and it's, it's, it's a key piece of work to do.
1: Yeah. And, and it might be, it might sound like it's a lot of effort. Um, but what's more effort really is going to be spending the rest of your life, you know, still dealing and playing over these video videos over in your head and these messages yeah. and trying to struggle. I'll tell you a really simple goals.
0: way to do it. What's the evidence? What is the evidence for whatever the limiting belief is you've got? So, for example, for me, mine is about intelligence, and I have to on my days where it's it's stopping me from doing something, I have to say to myself. What's the evidence, Deborah? Okay, look look back at what you've achieved. Sometimes I even go back and I read my own Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> and I read that and I go, does that sound like someone that is not intelligent? Because there are different forms of intelligence. Just because you didn't, you know, get three A's at A level, it doesn't mean say you're not intelligent. Look at what you've achieved. And and so, you know, we've we've got to challenge the misconceptions we're carrying around by asking ourselves, what is the evidence for this belief I've somehow got stuck with?
1: I mean, and you must, I'm sure you haven't done this, but I bet you attempted at one point at least to write a letter to your English teacher. Um, maybe take a photo <laughs> of your MBE that you have and to throw in some different snippets and things like that in there. I'm sure you're not the sort to do that, Deborah, but uh, <laughs> it must have been I think at I did when I got
0: my first book through the post from the publisher, you know, the fact that I had a book published was just so exciting. Because I i honestly, I wanted to put a little note in the front saying, dear, no, whatever the name was, <laughs> Put this in your pipe and smoke it.
1: Oh, <laughs> I'm sure. Good stuff. OK, so um, you've mentioned that you're a mother of how many children? Two, two girls, eight and ten. Gymnastics crazy. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's so cool. Um, what, what are the important lessons that you feel that your children or, or other children need to learn now when they're young um, to build these mental tools themselves? Because obviously we know that um, children, as we've mentioned, are extremely influenceable. Uh, We know that their values are um, created most often not before the age of eight years old um, or the way that they they will end up seeing the world is as a result of the experiences that they've had between the age of of zero and seven. Um, Are there any really important lessons that you are proactively teaching your own children or that we think that we as gymnastics coaches should be teaching our kids? I think it's definitely
0: worth building their resilience. I worry greatly that it's something they don't get through their education system uh, i think less and less do they get it from their home environment and so we have a a duty to try and build their resilience and, and resilience is is just their ability to bounce back from hardship or failure i had um a situation with my youngest when she was probably about 6 and she really wanted to go to her first competition and the coaches weren't sure about putting her in because no one else in her age category and and uh, and i said to them you know even if she fails or doesn't even make it through all any of her routines and comes last it's important to me she goes and does that because that's the best way we can build resilience in our children is actually to let them try and fail and of course we all want them to get the medal every time but unless they know what it's like that disappointment then you know then and they're given the chance to say try moves that seem way beyond where they're at to push them that little bit harder to not carry their bags, to you know, to make them take responsibility for their own equipment, to to build that resilience. I think that's a muscle, like like you said before with the brain. it's a, it's a muscle that we've got to get children to build. The other thing I think is really important with young people is is just is just to start to introduce this idea of the power of their mind. and we can do that really simply um by explaining visualization in a much simpler form. You know we all know at top level athletes visualization is a key part of winning gold medals but even at down at at, you know at at really young ages we can start to introduce visualization we can talk to them about you know what it's like when you watch cbb's or you know when you're watching something on tv you think of a program on cbb's now or cbbc that you watch and you can you can you think of a scene in your mind well that scene that you're picturing in your mind now i want you to, to picture your your gymnastics routine in the same way as if you're just watching a tv program but it's it's one in, in your mind about your own performance and you know i think we just need to introduce them that they can they can train for a better performance by by training their brain that they can also use that same basic visualization um to help them prepare for competitions and you know as a coach that might be something as simple as um, printing off a picture of, of the club that they're going to where they'll be performing. So they actually see what the gym's going to be like before they get there. I know for my daughters, and you know, it was it was going onto the website and sitting with them and just showing them, okay, this is the gym you're going to be competing in, that took a lot of the fear out of it because they think it's going to look like their gym and it doesn't, you know. And so they were really anxious about where well, they're going to be changing rooms and they you know where would I sit and what would I you know and they just need to see it. And then all the fear goes away. We can visualize the scene then. And that works even more powerfully because then when they start to I call it running the movie rather than visualization they run a movie in their head of their performance they can then put it in context they can put it in that gym that they're going to visit And, you know, none of that needs to take a lot of time. It's just showing the kids a picture and just sitting down and, you know, talking them through that or taking 30 seconds before the end of a program just to get everyone to close their eyes and go, OK, see yourself walking to that gym with your shoulders back, with your head held out high, feeling really super confident. You know, so they're already training their brain of how they're going to walk into that gym, feeling ready to win. So I think these little touches early on can really help empower athletes. I think...
1: (laughs) what you've just said over the last few minutes is a very, very important message, Um, you know, particularly around building the resilience. Um, I I call the opposite approach cotton wool coaching, which (laughs) is, which is protecting the child from, or or what is seen to protect them. So it's like, let's not put them in a situation where they fail. So, you know, the opposite of what you've said, let's only enter them to competitions where they can win a medal. You know, let's only let them do skills that they can successfully do. Um, You know, let's not, um, if, they, if they don't feel like going to training today, they can just stay at home instead. You know, that's kind of cut- mm, more coaching or cut- That's more the big one, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know,
0: I mean, of course, we all have those conversations with our children, but there's no choice, You know, as far as I'm concerned. They're, they're going, and of course, that you know that within five minutes being there, they're loving it, but it's really easy. And I think, I wonder where, if I was in coaching now, whether I would feel the need to coach the parents a bit because we have to help them to see that, Letting them drop out when they feel a bit tired or, you know, when they've got a bit of homework on, it's not a way to build resilience in our children. We've got it. We need the parents to work with us to push their children to become more resilient so that they can bounce back from those failures. And, hey, you know, the best way to sell this to them is if they can nail this, this at 10 years old, think what they're going to be like at 30 years old and how much this is going to impact their career.
1: Yeah, no, really, really valuable insights there. And, and it, is, it is a battle. It's a battle with a lot of um, clubs. Um, you know, coaching the parents, um, teaching the parents the right kind of behaviours. But again, it comes down to the fact that you can't teach what you don't know. So what, what we're talking about here, we, we could you could argue that it's high performance or high level thinking, if you like, you know, about building resilience and choosing your attitude and things. A lot of coaches don't do this. And if the coaches aren't doing it, they can't teach the, the kids. And they certainly can't teach other parents how to do it if they're not able to choose these kind of mindset tools. And I think that's why it's so important that that coaches have a level of consciousness and self-awareness and, and really know these skill sets themselves for them to be able to share with other people. Because I do believe that parents are not ill-intentioned. You know, I don't know any parents that want the worst for their child. They will act in a way that is um, is what they deem to be the best thing or in the best interest of their child. They just yes. might be a little bit misguided as to what that process actually looks like, and it's and it's hard to to hear that actually exposing them to failure is going to help them in the long run. I think that's quite a that's a bit of a paradigm shift for a lot of parents. It's like, well, you want you want me to put them in a situation where they they might be tearful after, or they're not going to succeed, and they're going to feel failure, and that's the right thing to do. And it's like, well, actually, like you like you've just said, yes, it is. In, in yeah, we educating them for life. Yeah. Yeah, as long as, of course, it is in in conjunction with um, support, and exactly, encouragement, yeah. and positivity, and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's that's where it really comes into play.
0: It does, and I think those, you know, that uh, they're they're quite simple things that we can do in that in that kind of support role. Um, I think it's about not being a toxic talent because we can be the most talented coach in the world, but if we're toxic in the way we're behaving around athletes. Particularly when it comes to those moments where they've just failed or they're really disappointed, we could do some lasting damage there. And and so you know it, it's being that self awareness of it's being really aware of what your face is doing. And you know neuroscience has told us now that smiling is one of the simplest things that we can do <laughs> to have a big impact on others because our brains are trained wired to smile back. You know to kind of feel something positive back. So we can smile. We can um uncross our arms and use really open body language when we're around athletes that are really disappointed um we can use free words like we've got this abundant supply of words that cost nothing it's free and if we don't use our free words positively when they're at their lowest ebb you know we've got that's when we've got to step up those free words we've got to find more ways to explain it to them that although they didn't win this time you know these are all the benefits that you've got from competing today so you know, so it's it's not being a toxic talent. It's it's using your face, your body, and your and your your words, um, to support them through the hardships.
1: Amazing advice, absolutely amazing. Deborah, this has been such an incredible episode, and I'm just so grateful for your time and your inspiration, your expertise on this. It's uh, it's been really enjoyable for me, and I'm sure it's going to be fascinating for the listeners also. Um, where can people find out more about the work that you do?
0: Well, um. DebraSell.com, which is (laughs) D-E-B-R-A-S-E-A-R-L-E, because it's a hard one to spell. DebraSell.com. But if you go to forward slash, so DebraSell.com forward slash free, there's a number of free resources there. There's an hour long um, online tutorial, um, which you may, if you watch it, you may even want to work through it with your, your athletes. And it's all around this mindset and attitude and how we do that on a practical level, Uh, there's a, there's a free download poster as well there on choose your attitude that if you think is appropriate, you might even be able to stick up in the gym or just, you know, use as an aid just to talk through with your athletes about how we have the choice. You know, we are completely in control of the attitude that we show up with. Um, so, you know, feel free to download those. The other thing, if if this is something that's kind of piqued your interest and you'd like to know more about it. I've decided for the whole of 2019 to do a Choose Your Attitude show every Monday night at about 8:30 on um, Facebook and on Instagram. It it goes out live, Um, and and do come and join me for that. Um, That if you sign up um, for on my website, if you've if you've missed an episode you'll get an email with a link to it the next day as well. So um, I, I'm on all the usual channels. On Instagram, I'm Deborah underscore Searle underscore MBE. And on Facebook, I am Deborah Searle MBE. All one word is how you find me.
1: Fantastic. And uh, and I joined you actually last Monday for your uh, Facebook Live. I think I saw it on Instagram and it was really interesting. And I've got it scheduled for tonight and I'll certainly be uh, making that uh, or showing up regularly because, um, you know, I'm I'm keen on training my brain and and there's an enormous amount of value that you're able to provide the community and, and I can learn from. So, uh, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there tonight as well. So um, th- thank you again for making the time to share your story and f- basically for the contribution that you're making to, to society. I think it's absolutely phenomenal the impact that you're having, not just um, through your, your books and sharing your story, but through the companies that you're doing and, and empowering people around the world. It's, uh, it's very inspirational. Um, so congratulations to you. Thank you for everything that you do. And thank you so much for joining us on the Jamastic's uh, Growth Show.
0: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you, Deborah. Thanks for listening to the Gymnastics Growth Show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head on over to iTunes or your chosen podcast player, subscribe, leave a review and share the show with your network. See you next time.